Our Father in heaven, Lord, we're so grateful for the honor and the privilege that you give to us to assemble here at camp meeting. And we pray that the same Holy Spirit that inspired your word would be with us here today, that he would speak through your word to each and every one of our hearts and our minds to grant us wisdom and discernment and the courage of our convictions to move forward. We know that you are coming soon. The enemy wants to introduce a counterfeit to closely resemble the genuine. And Lord, we need that eye-self that you have promised in Revelation chapter 3. And we pray that you will be present here to provide this, to lead us, and to guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome to each and every one of you. It's good to be back here in Michigan. Uh, especially now that I've moved to, uh, well, Arkansas and now Texas, uh, everyone wants to come up here uh, at this time of year. But don't worry, I'll be calling you in December and January and seeing how you're doing as well during that time. The title of our presentation, for those of you that are here for uh, the first time, is Emergent Theology, Overturning Sola Scriptura. Now, I have my contact information up there because I was told that as the presentation was drawing to a close that I was moving quite rapidly, and I'm very happy to share um, uh, these presentations with you. And my email address is up there. You can take it down, and I will be happy to send you a copy of the presentation. Also, I know that this is an issue like some other issues that can generate a lot of questions and uh, there's a lot of material to cover, and so I'm going to have to ask you to hold that, and I'd be glad to talk with you or anybody else uh, as I move to the back directly after our presentation here today. All right, so Emergent Theology, Overturning Sola Scriptura, um, that's the presentation. Um, we're dealing basically with one fundamental question through yesterday's presentation and today's presentation. And that fundamental question is this. And the reason why I've kind of reduced everything down to this is that when we talk about emergent theology as expressed through emergent worship, we're not talking about cosmetic issues. We're not just talking about painting up something. We're not just talking about some of the externals that you might see that we're going to talk about in just a little while. We're, uh, the emergent theology is expressed through emergent worship. Um, what's, up, what's up for grabs is whether the Bible is authoritative or not. That's really the issue. Whether the Bible is the only revealed source of authority uh, that's equal to God's name, that's equal to his presence. And I would just encourage you to listen to yesterday's presentation, which I'm going to review a little bit if that is a little unclear. God does reveal himself through creation, through his providence through many other ways, but none of those things are sources for theological data. If you want to develop a doctrine of God, if you want to develop a doctrine of humanity, if you want to develop a doctrine of cosmology, the world, and how all these things relate together, those are of no inspired value to you. Only the Bible is of inspired value. Okay? So while God can and does reveal himself through many different ways, when we're, talking about an, uh, when we're talking about establishing a theology of anything, this is your only source right here. Okay, And this is what's really up for grabs when we think about emergent theology as expressed through emergent worship. So uh, will we, is this compatible with fundamental belief, number one, on the authority of Scripture? Phrased differently, can we as Adventists continue to uphold fundamental belief number one if we choose to incorporate emergent practices into our worship service? 
Now, we began to answer the question yesterday by taking a look at what Jeroboam introduced in 1 Kings chapter 12. And he, he violated the Sola Scriptura principle. For those of you that are new here today, that this is your first, uh, your first time and you missed yesterday morning's presentation, in 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 28, when it says that the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, he got his counsel from philosophy and culture. He didn't get it from the Bible because when God spoke the Ten Commandments in that great worship service, he says, you didn't see any form. You just heard a voice because we worship the invisible God. That's why the Sabbath is, the Sabbath tells us a lot about the nature of God. You know, we spend all this time proving that the Sabbath is the right day to worship, and yet we don't use it. We don't use it when it comes to what does the Sabbath tell me about the nature of God? What does the Sabbath, I mean, philosophically, what does it tell me about the nature of man? What does it tell me about the nature of cosmology? What does it tell me about how all these things relate to and together? What does the Sabbath tell me about worship? What does it? And we don't use it. And I'm hoping that uh, this presentation will deepen our, our admiration and respect for what Ellen White calls the pillars of our faith, the sanctuary, the Sabbath, the three angels' messages, the, non -per the, the perpetuity of the law, the non-immortality of the soul. Those are the pillars. And it's through those pillars then that we begin to develop our entire doctrinal system, our concepts of spirituality, our concepts of worship, our concepts of mission. It is those that form the eyeglasses that help us to see how we should develop the rest of those things. Okay, just a, just a little bit of a review from yesterday's presentation before we move on. Uh, when Jeroboam surrendered the authority of God's word, he also surrendered the sanctuary as the main system that would interpret the divine presence, the worship leaders, the ritual actions, the encounter, and the response to the encounter. If you'll notice, the king took counsel, and in the previous verse, he wanted to divert the people's attention from going to Jerusalem. And he wanted to set up Dan and Bethel as the centers of worship. So when you choose an authoritative source that's outside of Scripture and you choose philosophy and culture, then all of a sudden the sanctuary is gone. It is gone. Okay? It loses its systematic role. And it ceases to be a principle that can interpret those five components that uh, I just mentioned there. The sin of Jeroboam is not primarily over worship style, who's qualified to lead worship, what's central in worship, the nature of the encounter, or the response to it. Although those are incredibly important and critical things. These are symptoms of a much greater disease. The sin of Jeroboam consists of abandoning the authority of God's word, the only source of revealed data, which is inextricably linked to the sanctuary as the system that interprets all of the worship components, the divine presence, the who, who, who's going to lead, the ritual actions, the encounter, and the response to the encounter. All of those five things are necessary in order to, for worship to be possible and in order for us to experience worship. As a result of abandoning the authority of God's word in the sanctuary, the system becomes philosophy and culture. And this sin is systemic in nature. In other words, once you abandon the authority of God's word, it's not like you're going to get the rest of it right. It's not going to work that way. Once you abandon that, you abandon the pillars. The pillars are gone. 
okay? But you still have to come up with a theology of worship, which includes a theology of God, a theology of human nature, you know, and all the rest of the stuff. You have to come up with that. That's a phenomenon that nobody can ignore. Where are you going to get your materials in order to properly understand those things? Obviously from philosophy and, and culture. And when that begins to come in, it will interpret the entire thing. So this sin is not just, uh, you know, uh, if you compare it to the structure of a building, it's, you know, I mean, you might be able to move some walls in the house, but there's some things you can't move. There's some things you can't touch. This sin touches those things. It obliterates those things. So that's the nature, that's the nature of it. It resulted in the worship of nature over the worship of God, uh, abandoning scriptural qualifications for worship leaders, the preaching and the word no longer central. It, it was a, it, it's a non-cognitive feeling-based power encounter, and there's a lack of reverence, a lack of mission, and many other things that, that we covered. Now, the reason why we went through Jeroboam is because I think it paints an accurate biblical picture, and we're going to fill in the details today when we talk about emergent theology. But before we move there, I need to kind of explain a little bit of the difference between charismatic worship and uh, emergent worship Be because that's where most of us receive this. That's where most of us are going to get in contact with uh, the emerging church. So similarities between the charismatic movement and the emergent movement. Um, the central role of extended music as the vehicle par excellence for the divine presence. Did you know that they refer to music now as musical transubstantiation? Okay. So, there are three major ways to experience the presence of God in corporate worship. For many centuries, it was the Mass. Okay, and when the, when the priest held up the wafer and said, This is my body, and prayed the prayer of consecration, the substance of the bread and the wine, which is interpreted on the basis of Aristotle, became the substance of the divine human son of God. And that became the vehicle through which congregations experienced the presence of God. And they referred to that process as transubstantiation. And the Catholics are quite proud of that. I'm not being derogatory in any way. They, def they will defend that to the death. Um... The second major way that congregations experienced the presence of God was through, during the Ref Reformation, was through preaching. The third way is through the charismatic movement. So the only thing that has changed between the mass and music is the vehicle through which people experience the presence of God. Okay? So before it was the wafer, and God was actually substantially in the wafer. When these guys talk about musical transubstantiation, the presence of God is actually inside the music. Are you following? The presence of God, quote-unquote, as our brother shared here, the presence of God, quote-unquote, is actually inside the music. So when you experience the music as a power encounter, you have an encounter with God at that point. And that's why most charismatics feel absolutely no need to study the Bible because they already have the presence of God. Why would I have to study the Bible in order to get the presence of God when it comes this way? So they refer to music as musical transubstantiation. They refer to music as the real presence. They, they call it sacramental. Anything that they call the mass, they call music now. 
So the underlying theological structure has changed zero. Absolutely nothing has changed. Okay? All right, so some of the similarities. Now, the other thing that I didn't mention up there on the screen is that, uh, uh, well, that'll be the differences. Uh, then let's go to that. Okay. Charismatics are critical of liturgical tradition. So charismatics never included, you know, and even, even in their celebration, they didn't call it the Eucharist. They called it the Lord's Supper, which is what we call it. And they once referred to it as a memorial, meaning that the presence of God was not in the wafer. It was a memorial. Why? Because God's presence is up in heaven. That's where, that's where he's at. And the Holy Spirit is a personal presence that's not in the wafer either. And so they're critic, they were critical of liturgical tradition and the sacraments and signs and all these types of th Those were never included in charismatic worship. You, get, you had the music. But, what, but emergence long for an experience of God's presence with sacramental rituals. See, emergence are not satisfied with the whole megachurch thing. The do-it-your-way thing. Oh, is that the way you want worship? Okay, we'll do it that way. They found that to be very empty. Okay? They found it to be empty. And so they're actually longing for and looking for an experience with the presence of God in worship or in other forms of spirituality. Big difference between the two that way. But so emergence will use all kinds of sacramental rituals along with the craziness of 21st century music. So they'll, they're going to combine things that way. Whereas charismatics, we're not doing that. Another difference. Um, charismatics assume the split between sacred and secular. Whereas emergence assume that the divine presence pervades all of nature. So this is a completely different animal. I know sometimes in worship it might look very similar, but this idea of the emerging church is, is, is a different animal. It is, it, it is something altogether, all right? So don't let the similarities kind of uh, sidetrack you uh, concerning, concerning this. Uh, the other thing to mention, the other one of the differences is that uh, in, in emergent worship, you not only have extended music, but you also have the celebration of the Eucharist being, a central, being central as well. Ever since Vatican II, which was a council that took place in the Catholic Church between 1962 and 1965, um, Catholics have come closer to the Word, allegedly, and uh, Protestants have come closer to the Eucharist. And so um, what's happening now is that you have the word and music. Uh, I'm sorry, the word, uh, uh, you have the Eucharist and the word as both central, okay? And so that's what you have in a lot of emergent uh, practices as well. They have a much greater reverence for the Eucharist than they do for the word. And so music, Eucharist are kind of going, going together. Okay, now we talked about systems, we talked about the fact that uh, worship includes five components, the divine presence, the worship leaders, the ritual actions, the encounter, and the response. Those need to be interpreted. You cannot have worship without any one of those five components. Just try to analyze the phenomenon yourself and come up with criteria, and you'll find that it's reducible to all those five areas. Those, those things need to be interpreted. We're either going to use the Bible and the sanctuary to interpret those things, or we're going to use philosophy and culture to interpret those things. So notice what um, the Great Controversy, page 423, says about the sanctuary. She says, The subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844 
it opened to view a complete system of truth connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand directed the great Advent movement and revealing present duty as it brought to light the position and work of his people. So the sanctuary does several things here. It not only solves the mystery of the disappointment, but it says it opens up to view a complete system of truth. Let me see if I can explain this a little bit more. Um, there's a difference between systems and data. For instance, I have a hymnal here, and um, I want you to imagine that this is Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. To most of you, this is just a bunch of raw data. I mean, it is, and if, especially if you don't know the symphony, you can look at the data, and it's absolutely meaningless. Okay? It's just a bunch of notes on a paper that has very little meaning. That data needs to be interpreted. Now, if you know anything about Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, there's a lot of orchestration here, a lot of, lot of musical instruments. Let's say, you pick the, let's say you pick the system of a ukulele. What's going to happen to all your data here? Okay. I mean, you got, you got violins, you got brass, you got woodwinds, you got percussion. But the system you pick to interpret the data is a ukulele. It's not going to fly. Okay. <laughs> what if you pick the piano? You're, it's better. Now at least you can get some of that rich harmony in there. Okay. <laughs> but how many different sounds does the piano make? Just one. But the, the data is calling for many different sounds. So you still have data that's not being used and that's being misinterpreted. Now, what if you pick the Chicago 120-piece orchestra? Now you have the right system. Not one note will be misinterpreted. Nothing will be missing. Okay? That's what the sanctuary does to the Bible. That's what the sanctuary does to the issue of worship. That's what the sanctuary does for spirituality. That's what the sanctuary does for theories of the atonement and salvation. That is the constructive role that it plays. This is revolutionary. This is, I mean, this to me is incredible. So you either have the sanctuary as the system or in selected messages during the Kellogg crisis, she said this, the fundamental principles that have sustained the work for the last 50 years would be accounted as error. A new organization would be established. Books of a new order would be written. A system of intellectual philosophy would be introduced. Now, like most of us, if I sat up here and said, okay, I'm going to teach you about Plato and Aristotle as viable means of understanding the Word of God, most of you would be like, now, wait a minute now, <laughs> okay, I think I'm going to have a problem. But this is how emergent theology works. It works by expressing itself through different forms of worship, and we don't see the connections to an intellectual philosophy that is at the root that is interpreting all of the components. That's what's taking place, all right? Okay, well, what are some of the uh, attitude, emergent attitudes towards the Sola Scriptura principle? These are just, these are just attitudes. Um, this is Brian McLaren, and if you don't know him, he's a major, major guru of the emerging church. In the book uh, Vatican II, 40 years later, uh, this statement is quoted. Brian McLaren states... Quote, the Protestant Reformation separated two brothers, Scripture and tradition. These brothers aren't the same, but neither should they be enemies. So it's very clear that for him, the sola scriptura principle is out. 
what the Reformation did was wrong. Okay? So the Bible is not the only revealed source of authority for him. What about Phyllis Tickle? She wrote, she's an elder stateswoman of the emerging church. She wrote a book called, she's written several books on the emerging church, one of them called The Great Emergence. This is page 101, and I'm summarizing what she's stating. I'll get back to, I'll get back to her in a minute. She predicts that the Sola Scriptura Reformation principle stopped by Protestantism will be dead. Okay? So those are the emergent attitudes Some of, the, of, of some major thought leaders and I could quote you a whole ton more, but it isn't necessary, of what they, uh, the great emergence, it's either 2008 or 2012. She wrote two books on that. Um, and so, yeah, it's either 2008 or 2012. Okay, well, so let's, let's look at emergent theology as the system, okay? Um, let's look at it as the system which is going to interpret the divine presence, the worship leaders, the ritual actions, the encounter, and the response to the encounter, all of which components you need in order to have worship. And so let's look at how emergent theology does this. So um, let's look at the divine presence. So how do emergence then interpret the divine presence? Presence. This comes from uh, a book by Gibbs and Boulder called uh, Gibbs and Boulder called Emerging Churches, written around maybe 2005. And Robert Weber, who is another elder statesman of the Emerging Church, he's passed on. Right, he's passed on now. He's probably written about 40 books on worship. Okay, evangelical, well-known evangelical scholar and uh, a, a a a great promoter of the Emerging Church. He's actually written books called that uh, uh, he calls it the Ancient Future Series. Okay, I'm going to end up quoting one of, the, one of those books. Okay, so, since all things are potentially sacred, God's being does not exist outside of creation. Now, I'm, I'm kind of boiling it down and simplifying it because I, wanna, I don't want, this is not a, you know, this is not a uh, presentation for the Journal of the Adventist Theological Society. We're at camp, we're, we're at camp meeting here. We don't have time for that. I'm just boiling it down. If you want the notes, email me. I'll send them to you. Uh, and when the dissertation comes out, you'll be on my email list. Okay. That was my attempt at humor. That didn't work. So God's being does not exist outside of creation. God is fully imminent in creation. Yet creation embodies the transcendence of God. Okay. So God does not exist outside of the creation. He's not separate and distinct from the creation. He's limited to the creation, okay? But yet he's greater than it at the same time. Yesterday we talked about this fancy word called panentheism, which we're going to get to in, in just a moment. Uh, and in panentheism, God, God's, the, the soul of the world is the immaterial part of God, and then God's body is also the world. Now, the soul is unchanging, but the body is constantly changing and evolving, okay? So this is the idea behind panentheism. So, um, so God is fully imminent in the world and yet greater than the world. Well, emergence refer to this as a paradox, and this is my commentary, yet to confuse nature with the, creator, uh, with the creator of nature is idolatry. And it renders the Sabbath as completely obsolete and worthless and meaningless. Because the Sabbath is supposed to demonstrate that there's a distinction between the creator and the creation, and now God is fully imminent with the creation. So the Sabbath has absolutely no meaning whatsoever. 
And if you keep the Sabbath, if Adventists accept this whole idea of how God relates to the world, yes, they may worship on Sabbath, but the Sabbath has absolutely no meaning. It's cultural, okay? You do it for cultural reasons, not for any biblical or theological reasons. Let's continue on. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, uh, he is a Roman Catholic theologian, paleontologist, uh, deceased in 1955. He exercised a dominating influence on Vatican II, even though he wasn't there, through many of his writings. Okay? And um, Clark Pinnock, who is not really an emergent, but yet whose theology of the divine presence is absolutely emergent, and Robert Weber, who I stated was, is an elder statesman of the emerging church, having written several books in the series called the Ancient Future Series. So Clark Pinnock and Robert Weber employ Chardin's um, panentheistic evolutionary concept of the divine presence in order to justify the use of music, all kinds of music, and all kinds of sacramental rituals. That's in Clark Pinnock's book, Flame of Fire, and Robert, Robert Weber's uh, book. I'm sorry, I didn't give you the source on that. Now, what is this whole panentheistic evolutionary concept? Um, if you're playing Pictionary, you don't want me on your team. This is probably the best I can do uh, pictorially to try to explain this. Um, so Pierre Teilhard de Chardin talked about an, uh, a, a panentheistic evolutionary concept in which God began the process of evolution, and he himself has been evolving through the process of evolution. Okay? So he's been coming to an awareness of himself through the process of evolution. So it first begins with, you know, uh, the, uh, uh, let's see, co cosmogenesis, the, the evolution of the cosmos, then the evolution of life, then the evolution of consciousness, then we're all marching towards the, interestingly enough, he called it the omega point, where we all become divine, okay? And so, uh, so the world is the rectangle, he's the whole rectangular picture there. And part of the world is God's invisible soul which is unchanging, and the other part of the world is God's visible body, which is constantly changing. So you have a duality in God. That's the nature of the panentheistic theory. So it's an evolutionary theory in which God has come to awareness of himself through this process, and we all eventually become God at the end. All right, so that's what we're referring to when we talk about panentheism. It's synonymous with theistic evolution. It cannot be any other way. And that's found again in Chardin's book, The Phenomenon of Man, and in Clark uh, Pinnock's uh, book and Robert Weber's book as well. So basically, the Catholics are the brains. If you thought they were a bunch of idol-worshipping idiots, uh, you're dead wrong. <laughs> they are the brains. They're the ones that chart the course philosophically. And the rest of them follow. We're usually about 30 or 40 years behind. Okay, because we don't really pay attention too much to what they're doing. We do, they're doing their thing, we're going to do ours. But I tell you what, if you don't attempt to understand what's happening out there and are able to contrast and explain the difference between their system and our system, we're sitting ducks. That's how brilliant these people are. Okay? So the job of a priest in the Bible is to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean, to show the differences between the two. If, you know, now that I love teaching now, if a student can't do that, they haven't learned. They have not learned. 
If you cannot tell the difference and articulate the difference between the two, somebody's going to ask you the smart bomb question and say, well, how do you know what you know is true then? If you can't tell me the difference. So that's why we're going through this laborious, laborious process. Uh, some people want an easy definition for the emerging church. There, there really isn't one. Okay? There really isn't one. You've got to analyze it as a complete system. If you don't, it's very hard to understand it, and it's very hard to articulate what it's about. Okay, so that is their concept of the divine presence, which of course comes from human uh, philosophy. And I'd love to take you through human philo or Greek philosophy 101 and explain to you the differences between Parmenides' concept of static, static, you know, timeless truth, and then Heraclitus, which means the truth is always moving, but in a timeless way. We don't have time for that, and it isn't necessary. If you want to talk to me about the details, I love that stuff, okay? I love explaining how it works and how it's totally unbiblical. But if you're unaware of it, um, you know, uh, sometimes the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn anything at all. Well, you can, you can stick your head in the sand about philosophy, and many people have done that and have been doomed to be affected by it. So this is something that you cannot stick your head in the sand. Now, I realize not everyone's a philosopher, nor, nor do you want to be, and that's okay. I'm Greek, so it's kind of part of the territory. Um, uh, but if we don't know how something works, we are doomed to be affected by it. And I could tell you all kinds of lessons from the Protestant reformers, okay? From the Protestant reformers. Who, oh, yeah, sola scriptura, sola scriptura, sola scriptura, and then their position on subjects A, B, and C is straight up Thomas Aquinas, Roman Catholic theologian par excellence for that church. Straight up Thomas Aquinas. So you can stick your head in the sand if you like, but we are not going to be benefited by that. Okay, so here we go. Sorry about that tirade. I just <laughs> Okay. Um, now, the emergent mission is to tear down the sacred-secular split by infusing all of reality with the divine presence, this was preceded by the Catholic Church at Vatican II. Ronald Wilkins wrote a book called The Emerging Church in 1968. Okay? I would encourage you to listen to a group of presentations by Dr. John Markovich, uh, a history professor at Andrews University, who did a, who did a great series on the emerging church. I would, I would strongly encourage you to listen to his presentations that he did at GYC several years ago. Um, the emerging church, the story of the Roman Catholic Church from its beginnings to the present. This is a completely evolutionary theory of God which comes, that comes from Chardin. That's what took place at Vatican II. And so the Catholics have already worked this thing out. The emergents, are, they're not doing anything new. Theologically, nothing new. The Catholics have already worked it out. And this is no Catholic conspiracy theory. I mean, if you stay... I've studied the Vatican II documents. Do you know how much we've done with Vatican II? I've read 20 Adventist dissertations. Zero. Okay. Why? Because we don't study philosophy. And if you don't study it, you don't understand it. And if you don't know how the pillars work, the pillars are the antidote. to The pillars are a biblical theological philosophy. They help us to, you know, they help us to, un to understand and interpret just about everything else. Okay. Uh, emergent theology assumes this concept of the divine presence in its worship. This is why anything and everything can be used for worship. If the divine presence is infused in everything, then that legitimizes everything. 
There's no such thing that is right or wrong, and this is more right or that is more wrong. No, the divine presence is there. The only sin is in not using it. Emergent worship merely carries out the aims and visions of Vatican II. Continuing on, when we talked about Jeroboam in 1 Kings chapter 12, and we said, look, when you, when you reject the authority of God's word, when you reject the sanctuary as the interpretive principle to interpret the, the, the divine presence, it's nature worship. Notice what she says, patriarchs, um, I'm sorry, prophets and kings, page 282. She says, such were some of the results that had followed the setting up of the two calves of gold by Jeroboam. The first departure from established forms of worship had led to the introduction of grosser forms of idolatry until finally nearly all the inhabitants of the land had given themselves over to the alluring practices of, notice what she calls it, nature worship. Because their concept of God was limited to the calves, which is a part of creation. That's nature worship. So that's a really theological statement. That's why when somebody tells you that Ellen White's writings are just kind of pastoral, I don't think they really know a lot about theology and philosophy. Personal opinion. So I would encourage you to read the books. Because she is a theologian par excellence. She just doesn't write in the same language that they do. Okay, going to worship leaders now. So if we use, this is a form of Greek philosophy. If we use a, this form of Greek philosophy, then how does that affect how we interpret, you know, who the worship leaders ought to be? Since the divine presence is infused in all of creation, which includes every human being, we then become a body-soul dichotomy. Just like God is dichotomized between the invisible part of the world, which is the unchanging part of God, and then the visible part of the world, which is the constantly changing part, which is evolving, so you and I are a composite of this body-soul dualism, and we have a part of our nature, immaterial and invisible, which is unchangeable, and then the material aspects of our nature, guess what, can be constantly Changing. Emergents have a dynamic and changing philosophy of leadership rather than a static one. That's because their concepts of leadership are based on their underlying principles and philosophies. They assume a body-soul dualism, and then from that they develop their principles of who ought to lead in the worship service. So they have a, a, a dynamic rather than a static one. Well, in the beginning, the Bible tells us that he made them male and female. That's unchangeable, except if you live today. Think about it. They're, they're seeking to place a dichotomy where none exists. They're seeking to say that your maleness is, is not a part of your identity. That your femaleness is not a part of your identity. That's, that's, that's based on a philosophical position which states that part of you is essential and immaterial and the other part of you is not. So you can change all your anatomical parts and think that you're someone else. Potentially, anyone, regardless of sex or sexual orientation, has the ability to facilitate worship, who has the ability to facilitate worship, can lead. Because those are non-essential aspects. Okay? Those are non-essential aspects. 
This is why this is one reason why the emerging church has had a huge problem with homosexuality and not really wanting to take a position on it. Brian McLaren has basically stated, oh, I don't want to answer this question. We're going to have a moratorium on this. Yeah, he's going to have a moratorium until time moves on long enough, until the ground can be developed, until, the, until everyone then is fine with the idea, and then he can come and say, hey, we've emerged now, and this is our position. But in the Bible, it's a philosophical statement when it says he made them male and female. And if you have XY chromosomes running out through your entire system, you're a male, no matter what you do to your anatomy. That is an integral part of your identity. And only by using these philosophical concepts can you, can you create this kind of dichotomization. That's really at the root of it all. So I, I'm wanting you to think about reasoning from what's on the ground to what their position is. Because this is really where the battle lies. So are we going to believe and trust what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1 to 3? Are we going to believe it and trust it or, or not? Now, homosexuality in the Sola Scriptura principle. Again, this is from Phyllis Tickle's book, The Great Emergence. She says now, she outlines a couple of, you know, several things that have been a problem for the Sola Scriptura principle, and she ends with this. Now there is only one more tool left in the Sola Scriptura war chest. There was only one more pawn left on the board. Enter the gay issue. This is a battle to the death. When it is resolved, and it most surely will be, the Reformation's understanding of Scripture as it has been taught by Protestantism for over five centuries will be dead. She continues, Such an ending must be staved off with every means available and resisted with every bit of energy that can be mustered. Of all the fights, the gay one must be, has to be, the bitterest, because once it is lost... Notice the finality of the language. It will be lost. Once it is lost, according to her, there are no more fights to be had. It is finished. Now, please don't miss this. Where now is the authority? What is the underlying issue in her analysis? Is it the homosexuality issue? That is not the underlying issue. Once this issue is lost, you can kiss the Bible goodbye. That is it. This is a battle over what is most authoritative. I hope you are seeing this. That's what we're fighting about. And if you want to surrender the sola scriptura principle, you may be a cultural Adventist, but I don't believe you're really going to be an Adventist in your thinking. You might eat veggie links, you might eat, you might go to church on Sabbath, you might teach about morality, but there is absolutely no ground for any of what you're saying. Nothing. And when it hits the fan, <laughs> are you still going to be an Adventist? Okay, ritual actions. All right. Architectural setting. I've got to move. When we talk about ritual actions, architectural setting is just, just one area. I mean, does it really matter how we do the architecture, in the architecture in the church? And I'm not talking about, you know, the color of the carpet here necessarily. God is, if, you know, so God is reduced to the world, yet since God's invisible soul is more important than his body, the world, churches can resemble Hindu, Hindu temples, giant huts, or industrial warehouse buildings. And I've quoted a bunch of sources for that. So in other words... It's what happens on the inside of the church that matters. Structurally, you can do anything you want. 
Now, you know, if all of our worship is directed toward the heavenly sanctuary, you know, there's a holy place and a most holy place. A friend of mine did something interesting when he was pastoring a church in Chicago, and they met in a gymnasium because that's, that's, that's what they had. And so that gymnasium was used for everything. It was used for, you know, the sporting events. It was used for, you know, what they were doing at school. It was used for worship. And one thing he did was he put a curtain through, you know, a third of it and said, no one is going to go there, okay? We're consecrating that part to God and to his service. The whole atmosphere of the church changed after that. The whole atmosphere of the church changed after that, okay? So this, this, this idea that we can just use one place for anything obliterates the distinction between holy and unholy. That distinction isn't there. So this is an overall broad philosophy of architecture, all right? We should have buildings that are consecrated to the worship of God. And if we don't have that, we should make sure that we introduce things where those things are understood until we can have it. But here, that's completely unnecessary, okay? So this is how these ideas begin to work themselves out throughout everything else. Okay, the day of worship. Well, since all of life and time is infused with the divine presence, the Sabbath is no more holy than any other day. That just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, that's logical. You can't expect these guys, if they believe that that's their idea of the divine presence, you can't expect them, you know, if you show them a few Sabbath texts to say, oh yeah, the Sabbath is more holier than any other day. It makes absolutely no sense to these guys. Hence, any day is acceptable as the day that emergents celebrate worship. For Adventists who accept emergent views and still worship on the Sabbath, the Sabbath is simply cultural. That's all. I mean, you, come, you, you worship on Sabbath, but it's, it's, it's just a cultural thing you do because you were raised as an Adventist. That's all. It has no ground whatsoever. There's no ground with these ideas. Okay, now, uh, continuing on with the day of worship. In the Pope's encyclical, this is Pope John Paul II, okay, so a, little, a few popes back. In his encyclical, D.A. Domini, the Lord's, the Lord's Day, Sunday symbolizes the Greek philosophical interpretation of all of the worship components. For instance, he calls Sunday the image of eternity. Now, that's, if you studied philosophy, that's huge, okay? Because for the Greeks, eternity is absolutely static. There is no time. There is no space. There's no such thing as God doing one thing and then the next day doing another. That's a metaphysical impossibility for God. Okay? That is the God of the early church. That is the God of Catholicism prior to Vatican II. So when the Pope says Sunday is the image of, etern of eternity, it affirms Plato's distinction between the timeless view of reality and time as its moving image. The Pope said Sunday becomes the soul of the other days. Very interesting language. Soul-body dichotomy, which is more important. Obviously, your soul. So if Sunday is the soul of the other days, it is indicating that it has an essential nature that's different from all the other days. Uh, only understood on the basis of Aristotle. Now, um, the post-Vatican II view is that Sunday symbolizes the evolutionary view of history in which God initiates the evolutionary process and comes to an awareness of, his, of himself as history culminates into the Omega. So what I'm getting at here is that Sunday is the... You, you know when you have a mascot? 
You know, like a mascot stands for the philosophy of the team and all that. When you have a flag for a country, the flag of that country stands for all of the ideals of that country. This is how they view Sunday. Are you following? This is not just the day. Sunday symbolizes also, he said, the world that is to come that knows neither evening nor morning because there is no passage of time in ultimate reality. It's entirely static. If you believe that, then the Bible makes no sense when it says, from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come and worship before me. You might as well throw that out. Again, that comes from Chardin's The Phenomenon of Man and D.S. Domini. Uh, the Lord's Day that the, po that the Pope wrote. Sunday also symbolizes the Greek philosophical interpretation of the divine presence. Actually, they call Sunday the day of the Lord. They call it the day of the church, the day of humanity, um, so forth and so on. Sunday is the day of, the day of, the day of, the day of. Are you following? So when they talk about the divine presence, it's like, in the incarnation, time becomes a dimension of God who is eternal. Well, let me, I have news for you. The Bible says regarding God, it calls him he who, who was and is and is to come. It says in Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, from everlasting, this way, to everlasting, that's everlasting before the creation of the world. God has a history. He's had a history prior to the creation of this world. The ancient of days. There's no dichotomy between eternity and time, but there is if you're Greek. Or if you're a Greek who believes in that, and I don't. Because I'm going with this, <laughs> okay? <laughs> so in the incarnation, time became a part of God. Uh, no. It was always a part of, you know, it was always a par part of him. Human nature, the day of humanity. Well, that's Sunday as the day of humanity is a symbol for the body-soul dichotomy. That's what it's a symbol for. Okay. Um, now, how does this relate to the emerging church? Well, emergent thought leader Robert Weber follows Vatican II and D.S. Domini when he connects Sunday with... The Divine Presence, Worship Leaders, Ritual Actions, The Encounter, and the Response to the Encounter in his book, Ancient Future Time. So he's getting across the idea that Sunday is just more than a day. So he's, he's following Vatican II. He's following the Catholics in all this. Sabbath versus Sunday is not a difference of mere days. Okay? Sabbath versus Sunday represents two diametrically opposed interpretations of reality. That's what they represent. Sunday stands for the human philosophical interpretation of reality with all those, uh, the, the human philosophical interpretation of the components, and Sabbath as a, what does it call it? It's a sign of the Bible's interpretation of the uh, different interpretation, diametrically opposed interpretation of those same components. No wonder the devil hates the Sabbath. It tells us everything about God, everything about what human nature ought to be, the, the origin of the world, how we all relate together. When the Sabbath goes, the entire structure comes down. Are you seeing this? Okay. The entire thing comes down. Okay. Music replaces the word. 
theologians refer to music as the real presence. It used to be through the Eucharist, and now it's through their music. You have the real presence now, allegedly. It's called sacramental. It's called musical transubstantiation. Historically, as I stated earlier, the above descriptions were first applied to the Eucharist, then to the Word, now lastly to music, with no theological change whatsoever. Okay? No theological change to that. Music's reality is interpreted from Greek philosophy. Now, Pentecostal and charismatic music. Again, uh, regarding the first one, Negro spirituals, there's not anything, you know, objectionable about Negro spirituals. We have been tremendously blessed by a lot of that. However, a lot of it is also kind of confused with rhythm and blues, and those are two different, two entirely different phenomena, okay? And they can be confused. And so Negro, some Negro spirituals, the ones that have been rhythm and blues-dized, okay, those jazz and blues, the rock revolution of the 1960s, the Jesus movement, the praise and worship bands of later decades. That's the, that's the Pentecostal and charismatic music. The most dominant musical characteristic is the syncopated rhythms, whether it's Pentecostal or, 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 or emergent. Now, emergent does have some other forms of music as well. Okay, um, So emergent music also includes Pentecostal and charismatic music along with chants and taze, like folk-type music, and hymns. So they love to combine things, okay? They love to combine stuff. But again, it's the underlying philosophy of, 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 of why they're combining and what they're combining, and some of those things are really problematic. Again, since God's soul is invisible and most essential, this represents the unchanging mathematical basis that remains after music stops. You know there's a really mathematical basis to music? Okay. 7 plus 3 is 10. How long will that continue for? Will that ever change? <laughs> will you add them up someday and it becomes 11? <laughs> no, it will always be. So the mathematical basis of music, they say, is unchangeable, like the soul of the world, which is unchangeable. Now, the rhythms, melodies, and harmonies can change. And there's no connection, causal connection between the two. This is how they justify the use of all music throughout the entire world today, okay? All kinds of music. It doesn't matter what it is, okay? So God's, um, so God's body of the world refers to all the changeable aspects of rhythm, melody, and harmony. That's in Albert Blackwell's book, The, Sa uh, the Sacred in Music. This dichotomy between God's invisible soul and the world as his body also justifies the blending of Pentecostal and charismatic music with with hymns, so they, 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 they blend all these things together. Yet all of this is based on the Greek philosophical view of reality and not on Scripture's view of reality. This is, uh, just to give you a, a snippet of a worship experience, this is uh, found in Gibbs and Bolger's book. I'll give you the reference in just a minute. This, this, is, in a, this is in a church, in, uh, a, an evangelical church in, in Texas. They said, we started moving to a more participatory and symbolic worship expression after about two years of slowly seeing people bring ideas. For example, we configure our Eucharist to be the center of the auditorium and the focal point, and we are seated around it with the band located in the back and dimly lit. We open our service by proclaiming that Christ, as symbolized by the Eucharist, is the reason we gather, and we invite people to partake when they are ready. They can partake any time during the service. 
most people move to the center kneeling on the prayer rugs and spend some time before the elements, you know, the, the bread and the wine. That's what they mean by the elements. The band plays for... Okay. Are you getting an idea of what's most important? <laughs> the band plays for 40 minutes, but there is no talking between songs, and art is displayed as well. It takes some getting used to in Texas, as most are used to a distinct focal point, well-defined structure, and group activity as opposed to individual activity. The biggest adjustment is to the preaching, as it is not the reason we gather. Okay? Since we view preaching as an art form rather than transformative, rather than the transformation, uh, transformative transfer of correct information, most people really like it. It is usually creative, short, and inspiring, but very different from what they are used to. Gibson Bolger's book, uh, book, Emerging Churches, page 229. Now, notice that for a minute. We view preaching as an art form. They're assuming that God never spoke in the Bible. So when the preacher starts breaking down the Word, he's not communicating anything that ever came from God to the prophet that's in the Bible. It's no different from a political speech or some oration that is to be evaluated perhaps on artistic terms, perhaps on cultural terms, but as far as God actually speaking in it, no. Never spoke through it. It's just an art form. Okay? Because God communicates more to us through music and through art and through those things. That's where the emerging church is at. And their underlying view of the divine presence is the panentheistic one. Okay, let's move. So uh, emerging uh, theology is the system. What about the encounter? Um, this comes from uh, uh, the book, The Philosophy of Music, and Lillian Dukan's book, In Tune with God. The nature of the encounter, when you use a highly rhythmic form of music, the nature of the encounter is non-cognitive. It is a power encounter with the spirit experienced through the rhythms as energy and intensity of feeling and love. That's how people experience it. Now, I used to be a rock drummer, and I know what those rhythms do because I see the behavior right away, the change in the behavior of people. And most people are entirely ignorant as to how it works. So the, if, if, the, the, if the divine presence is inextricably linked with nature and now music is a part of nature, you are experiencing the divine presence through the music. And now Christ is in you. The hope of glory. So the, he's actually in you in a substantial and in an essential sense. But if you use the sanctuary and the covenant as principles to interpret the encounter, what it means for God to be in us is that his word is in us. I've come to place my laws in their hearts and in their minds. That's how we have a relationship with him. That is the structure whereupon we relate with God and he relates with us. And the second commandment says he doesn't relate to the world by being imminent within it. So the second commandment and the covenant also tells us how God relates to the world and how he does not relate to the world. These issues are huge. Okay, the response to the encounter. Pe Pentecostal and charismatic uh, uh, worship has mainly an affective and kinesthetic response. So in other words, how do they respond? 
to the divine presence. Well, crying, clapping, swaying, dancing, applause as praise offering, raising of hands, bowing, kneeling, walking around in a trance-like state, laughing uncontrollably, behaving as if drunk, and even imitating the noises of certain animals. Okay? Now, all those, now, you may be saying, well, what's wrong with bowing or kneeling? And I'm hoping you're getting the point through all this. And that is, don't take a single ritual action and separate it from the entire structure and say, what's wrong with this? And then incorporate the entire emergent the, uh, worship philosophy into your church. You are, to worship, you are to interpret and evaluate the ritual actions based on the rest of the components. Does that make sense? Because doesn't the Bible talk about raising holy hands? Is that not in the Bible? Yeah. Of course it's in the Bible. But, it, is, but it, it, it does not assume this structure. Therein lies the difference. Now, the most characteristic response, this is in, this is in a charismatic uh, service. The most characteristic response is tongue singing in concert which Clark Pinnock defines as prayer without concepts. Prayer at a deep, non-cognitive level. Do you know why this is prayer at a non-cognitive level? Because nothing cognitive came through in the encounter. Let me say that again in case it got by you. Why is the response non-cognitive? Because there was not a cognitive encounter. I hope that that's making sense to you. Nothing came through. So you respond with nothing. And you know what? Your response is just as legitimate as anyone else's response. Because there's nothing objective from which to evaluate it from. So if you want to bark like a dog, hey, that's just how the Spirit moved you. So God doesn't speak. And now, we speak for him. He's never spoken, but we speak for him. The, the encounter assumes that nothing cognitive was experienced, which is why tongues is the ideal non-cognitive response. Ideal non-cognitive response. Pinnock's flame of love. Okay. Emergent responses also include contemplative responses since there are symbols and sacraments as well, okay? So they have co contemplative responses. And what they basically do, and this is, this is based completely on Platonic or in Aristotelian philosophy, and uh, I've got time for just, for just something about this, okay? In Platonic and Aristotelian philosophy, what you see and experience in real life is not uh, the product of your senses. In other words, this is a pulpit, not because it's made of wood, not because it has a particular shape. That information comes to me from my, my senses. But reason tells me it's a pulpit because in, uh, the, in, 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 the, in the framework of ultimate reality, this is a duplication of that which has existed up there. There's a short lesson on platonic reality and epistemology. Okay, so ultimate. So this is called the Platonic forms. So everything existed in the Platonic realm, and everything you see in the creation is a duplication of that which has existed in the in, in the ideal realm. Idealism. Okay, these are the Platonic forms. So when they talk about contemplation, 
they're looking at the sacraments and they're looking at the art and they're moving back to the platonic forms. Okay. That's, that's, that's it. That's why I need the book to come out. I can explain a whole lot more when the book comes out because uh, all I have is sound bites in these areas. So when, when they talk about contemplation, that's, that's how they're doing it. And that's why signs and symbols and sacraments are, are important. That's why when you go to the Vatican like I did, I mean, it's covered with the most brilliant art. Because that art is sacramental. A sacrament is anything tangible through which you can gain access to the divine. Okay? So you use your senses, but really it communicates something about the divine world. But, it's, but the divine world is really the platonic world. That's how it works. So for music, one complicate, one contemplates. So if you were going to use, if you were going to contemplate music, you know what you would do? One contemplates the mathematical basis of music. How many of you do that as you're listening to music? <laughs> Most of us aren't equipped. Maybe some of us are. I know my wife can. She plays a high price for that perfect pitch, let me tell you. <laughs> she, she can do anything with her ears. But don't ask her to remember anyone. <laughs> so she pays a high price for that. And so you would contemplate the mathematical basis of music. And you've heard of Pythagoras? Okay. This is a cathartic experience. So you would use music and then contemplate the unchanging numbers upon which it was based. And you've arrived at enlightenment. Okay. So that is the kind of contemplation that they're talking about. Okay. So when you hear it, it leads you to the timeless mathematical basis. You know, the, the Catholics are using this with the, with the sanctuary. Did you know that? So, the presence of God is within the wafer, all right? The Catholics are talking about the sanctuary now, big time, okay? Do you know, according to the Catholics, why the Jews went to worship at the temple? The Jews went to worship at the temple because they realized that the divine presence was actually infused within the stones of the temple. Did you guys know that? Okay. The divine presence is infused within the, like within the bricks of the temple, within the stuff of the temple. Again, it's like if you know Aristotle, that's, that's straight up Aristotle. Okay. They've just taken the substance from the bread and the wine and transferred it to the building. That's all they've done. Okay? And these are the thought leaders. And so when they go and worship, they contemplate the divine presence within the stones. The Eucharist is based on the same principle. What you see leads you to contemplate timeless conceptions of the divine presence. Okay. Since there's a dichotomy between God's timeless soul and his body as the world, this justifies not only all kinds of music, but also all kinds of responses as being authentic, accurate, and beyond theological criticism. The varieties of music and the worshiper's responses to it are merely cultural responses to be evaluated culturally. That's all. That is it. Now, I want you to notice this amazing statement, Great Controversy 530. Eight. It is as easy to make, what does that say? An idol of false doctrines and theories. Have you ever thought about it that way? When I say idol, most of us are thinking about the, the, the thing that we, like this. 
It's just as easy to make an idol of, doc, of, of false uh, doctrines and theories as to fashion an idol of wood or stone. Now notice she gets theological on us here. By misrepresenting the attributes of God, that's what philosophy does. It interprets them in a way that isn't biblical. By misrepresenting the attributes of God, Satan, Satan leads men to conceive of him in a false character with many a, she even states it, a philosophical idol. There you go is enthroned in the place of Jehovah, the divine presence. You're always going to have a divine presence. He's either going to be interpreted from the basis of philosophical reflection or biblical reflection. You can't get rid of God. With many, a philosophical idol is enthroned in the place of Jehovah, while the living God, as he is revealed in his word, in Christ, and in the works of creation, is worshipped by but few. Now notice this statement. Thousands, what's the next word? What does that mean? To infuse it with divine qualities. Is that not what the emerging church does? Is that not a theological analysis of the emerging church's concept of the divine presence? Thousands deify nature while they deny the God of nature. Oops, went a little too fast there. Though in a different form, idolatry exists in the Christian world today as verily as it existed among ancient Israel in the days of Elijah. The God of many professedly wise men, of philosophers, poets, politicians, journalists, the God of polished fashionable circles, of many colleges and universities, even of some theological institutions, is but little better than Baal, the sun god of Phoenicia. That's a powerful statement. Great Controversy 538. So what are the consequences of accepting emergent worship practices into Adventism as we, as we wrap this up? The ultimate battle is over the authority of Scripture as the only authoritative source of revealed information which directly leads to the sanctuary as the system. You cannot have it any other way. When our pioneers studied the Bible, they went from Daniel and Revelation to the sanctuary we had the Sabbath conferences, which used the Sabbath and the sanctuary as integrative principles to build up the entire system we have today. We lost sight of that. I would recommend three articles by Dr. Fernando Canale, retired professor at the seminary. Journal of the Adventist Theological Society. They're called From Vision to System. It's a little technical, but pray. The same God who does all kinds of wonders in your lives can give you Things to, he, he can help you to understand. And it's basically an analysis of how we had the vision, 1844, we lost it. And now we're wandering in the wilderness. <laughs> Did you notice that when they were dispersed, uh, yes, her, his name is Fernando Canale, C-A-N-A-L-E. Journal Canale, C-A-N-A-L-E. Journal of the Adventist Theological Society. Jats. From vision to system. From vision to system. There are three articles there. Highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. You will see the sanctuary in a way you have not seen it before. And he goes through all the causes for why we, we are experiencing what we are experiencing today. Okay? On a scholarly, philosophical type level. Okay? But try to, try to trudge through it. Try to trudge through it. 
See, the, the, what, what happened when we, when, we, when, we, when we went to the university, we entered into an entirely new playground with entirely new rules that we weren't ready for. Okay? We were just not ready for it. And God has raised up people like Dr. Canale to, uh, to say, hey, this is what's happening. Um, okay. And talk with me later. I'll be glad to. If you didn't get the information, I've got to race through this for a minute. So, so once, the, once the word is gone, the sanctuary is out. That's it. It is done. It is gone. So the battle is over the authority of Scripture, whether we're going to use the sanctuary to interpret all the data, which is the divine presence, worship leaders, ritual actions, encounter, and the response to the encounter. If we do not use Scripture in the sanctuary, then by default we will use Greek philosophy because that's what's used throughout the entire the, of, of, of Christian history and culture as the system to interpret the worship components. Emergent practices include replacing preaching with music as central and also the Eucharist as central. The use of all kinds of music. Again, the Eucharist, the use of icons, images, paintings, drawings, sculpture, the theatrical and sacred spaces. Why? Because God is infused in all those things and that is the vehicle through which we experience the divine presence. Emergent worship practices cannot be divorced from these philosophical concepts that provide the authoritative interpretation for the concept of God that reduces him to nature, thus leading to the worship of nature. These philosophical concepts also have, have a role to play in the choice of worship leaders, irrespective of sexuality and of what the Bible teaches. These concepts are, have authoritative interpretation for the architectural setting that place worship bands in the Eucharist as central, not only in the, in the occupation of time, but also architecturally in the center as well. These principles uh, uh, will lead to viewing the Sabbath as merely cultural and the Sabbath and Sunday as, as a battle over days rather than signs that point to diametrically opposed interpretations of reality. These things will lead to interpreting the encounter as a non-cognitive power encounter experienced through syncopated rhythms as energy, intensity of feeling, and love. Emergent worship practices cannot be divorced. Again, yeah, these, these principles provide the authoritative interpretation for a plurality of responses to the encounter that can only be evaluated on a cultural and not a theological or biblical level. The appeal is Great Controversy 595. But God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms, the opinions of learned men, the deductions of science, the creeds or decisions of ecclesiastical councils, as numerous and discordant as are the churches which they represent, the voice of the majority. Not one nor all of these should be regarded as evidence for or against any point of religious faith. Before accepting any doctrine or precept, we should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord in its support. This is a choice over whether we want to go with the Bible or whether we want to go with philosophy and culture. That's what the emerging church, to me, is all about. If we want to be Adventists, then I pray that we will stick with the Bible, the sanctuary, and the pillars of our faith in order to develop a doctrine of worship and spirituality and mission and administration and leadership. If we do that, then we will be just like those who came out of the Babylonian captivity and began at once to rebuild the sanctuary and everything else. We are going to be doing it in a spiritual sense. And so I hope and pray that we can all join together 
in this process to hasten his return. Shall we stand as we pray? Our Father in heaven, Lord, we ask that you would open up our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. We know that there is much more to learn than the 28 fundamental beliefs. And we pray that we would have a hungering and a thirsting after your word, that we would ask you to please open it up for us, that they may become a savor of life unto life. Please, Lord, we need you in a very powerful way. We not only need to understand, but we also need to be like Christ as well, loving and kind and courteous. So please transform us, change us, and help us to have a part in hastening your return, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.